Thank you so much. Would you stand? Everybody stand with me. I'm going to talk in a few moments. I'm going to tell you how important this church is, has been in my life. But I'm just so happy just to be with you. This is a, this is a good um, place to come. And I was so happy just to, to be invited again and, um, and to be with you. And I feel like God's given me something for you. So I'm going to get ready to share with you in just a second. But I have to say something before we pray. Um, it's, I, I, it's always different coming from New York City to Fort Worth. You guys are just so friendly. I don't know what's wrong. I just I don't know what to do. People wave at you and you kind of go, what do you want? And I don't know what to say to folks that are just always so friendly because we, we have attitudes in New York and we just, just the way we operate. So if you come up to me, I'm always going, what do you want? Who are you? I don't know you. Talk to security. So I want, I want for just a few moments, I'm going to ask you to do two things for me. First of all, um, was that worship tremendous today in the choir? Wasn't that tremendous? Thank you so much. You guys did such a tremendous job. And I'm so excited. I needed that, Pastor Dan, because it's just, I, I needed just to kind of get ramped up because I, I fly out of here tomorrow and then I go to Detroit to be with Marvin Winans at their convocation. So I will be the only white person around for miles at that convocation. So I just needed some, I needed some white people that acted a little unwhite today. And so thank you. Thank you for being a little unwhite for me today. Very important. Now I need you to kind of put on, and I know some of you are all into the, the Texas thing, but I need you just to get a little attitude for me before we pray. So I need you to get a little New York for me. And so get a finger up in the air. Just get a finger up. And I want you to look at the person next to you and say, the new guy is about to preach. And say, you better listen. And then say this, don't think about anybody else. Think about yourself. And I'm telling you, you better get right with God. Stop messing around. Say, I love you. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, come speak to us today. We want a word from heaven. I'm so thankful for this church. I'm thankful for the legacy that it has brought uh, to this city, to this metroplex, and how, God, you have used for decades Pastor Dez and how he's influenced my life and God, how he's influenced so many, so many people here. And thank you, God, for the passing of the baton, the passing of the torch, and how you're using, God, Pastor Dan, and Lord, what you're doing now in this church, God. Thank you that, Lord Jesus, that when it's built on the rock and it's built on Jesus, great things are ahead for this place. God, I thank you that Des never built this on a man, but he built it on the man, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, today, let me not begin to do anything that Pastor Dan, Pastor Des would undo. Let me be an echo for what they're already saying. So, God, today we deal with ourselves. We're not going to think about who should be here. We're not thinking about, we, I wish so-and-so was here. We will deal with ourselves today and let this be a place of healing in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. amen. God bless you. You may be seated. Now. Let's get ready just to go into the Word. I, I shared last time I was with you a little bit of biographical information, but I want to add one thing to this. Uh, many of you know I've spent 30 years as a result of missions trips. When you see missions trips come up on the screen, you need to take that seriously. Even with Pastor Stephen, what he's talking about, is it the Mexico? Is it the Mexico trip? You need to take that very seriously because it was a missions trip that I said yes to that literally changed my life 
destiny and what I was going to do. I said yes when I was in between semesters at Baylor University. And David Wilkerson said, would you go to Detroit and help us start a church for two for two months, and I was painting homes here in Texas. And how many know painting homes in Texas in the summer is the closest thing to being unsaved and going to hell than anything else you can imagine? It is so hot in that place. I think I saw Lucifer in some of your homes that I probably painted for you. And so when he said, would you go to Detroit for the summer and just, just help us start a church, it was fine. I, just, I got out of painting. My motive was wrong, but God uses even bad motives, doesn't he? And so my motive just to get out from painting worked great, got to Detroit. And at 19, they put me in a prostitution hotel and said, that will be your Bible study. And that's where I learned to preach, was in a Bible study with pimps and prostitutes in the 1980s. And what I thought was going to be two months of my life ended up being 30 years of my life. Later on, we bought a 900-seat X theater and turned it into a church. And before we left for New York City and Brooklyn Tabernacle, um, we were meeting in this place that uh, God began just to put together. And we saw many of the men that used to come to the theater to, to look at the movies now sitting in the very seats that kept them in bondage. Now, sitting in a place that they're being liberated and set free by Jesus Christ, which was very exciting to us. And so, we, people used to come to me all the time going, like, you meet in a triple X theater? I said, we're still triple X. I said, we just have ex-junkies, ex-alcoholics, ex-prostitutes, all saved by the power of Jesus. When, and we thought we'd spend the rest of our life there. Cindy and I and our four children, we lived in the community that we that we pastored in. Next to our church was the Deja Vu Strip Club. On the other side of us was the Worldwide Pornographic Videos. And across the street was the Crown uh, Transvestite Prostitution Hotel. And so that's where we were, a lot like Bethesda. So we were sitting there right in, that's, that's where the church was. There was. And we lived a mile away, and that's where we were raising our four children. When a phone call came for us to go to Brooklyn Tabernacle that we were blindsided with and didn't know that this is what God was wanting us to do. So we've been in New York for three years. The story that got us there and the man who is preaching there this Sunday at Revival Tabernacle where I left in Detroit and I'll be next week after being with Marvin Winans is the story I just need to tell you for a few moments. Because we just finished our youth conference very much uh, uh, a place where we were bringing together youth from all over the country, and we would, it was a time of ministry on the streets, and then they would, they would, they would uh, come back at nighttime to hear people like Donnie McClurkin, uh, Dr. R.T. Kendall, Lauren Cunningham from YWAM, all those kind of guys. And so the kids would be in ministry, and then they would, they would be ministered to at night. We just finished our, our conference, and um, my executive pastor's family just left for vacation our executive pastor was waiting two days, and then he was going to join them. I lived, as I said, in the community that we ministered in. And the church that I pastored was predominantly a black church. And so I, I, it was just the area that we lived in and what we, what, where we were. And um, where I lived was a street called California Street. Our executive pastor lived on a street called Massachusetts Street. I could see his front door from my back door. I can look through the alley and see it. Something happened that changed his life, changed our church life, changed all of our lives when this family left. At 3 o'clock in the morning, I got a 3.30 in the morning, I got a phone call. I was in Minneapolis interviewing a staff member, possible staff member that did come. And it was from his wife who said to me, she goes, I just got a call from Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit. 
And they said, Kevin um, is undergoing surgery, and uh, I should get home immediately. She goes, what do I do? Is it, is it right? I said, well, let me check. Let me send somebody over to the house. Maybe there's a different Kevin, or I don't know what it may be. We've never had any problems, and Kevin was in perfect health. And I, I called our youth pastor. I said, go, go. It was 3.30 in the morning. I said, I, I know I'm inconveniencing you, but go around the corner and just see if Kevin is there, maybe knock on the door, because his wife is worried about him. When I got the phone call, I knew something was wrong because he said, I I heard the sirens in the back, and he says, there's yellow crime scene tape all over his house. He says, I can't get close to it, and I knew that something was wrong, and I needed to kind of call in some chips and call some uh, authorities in the city to see what went on. And the story goes like this. Kevin, at 3 o'clock in the morning while he was in bed, hears somebody, a random guy, break through the front window of his house and a man who was looking for drug money breaks into the house and then grabs the largest kitchen knife in the house. Kevin is coming downstairs. His family is gone. And he meets him on the stairwell. And the man takes the knife and jabs it into his stomach and begins to tear away at my executive pastor's stomach. Then when they embrace, he couldn't fall to the ground. He fell on the man. Then the man proceeded 12 times in the back to try to hit the spinal cord to cripple him. And then when he fell on the ground, he went another six times to the juggler vein to try to hit the juggler vein. And after 37 stab wounds, he's laying on the ground. And Kevin is there. I mean, it was just, doesn't know what to do at this point other than to say his final prayer to the Lord. And his final prayer to the Lord at that moment was, God, like a father, don't let my children be bitter with you or be bitter with ministry. Let them know that, God, you're always just and you're always good, no matter what happens to their dad. And he said, Pastor, I said, I don't know if it was audible or if it was something internal. He said, I heard a voice say to me, get up. They still need you. And he said, with While the man is robbing the second floor of my house, without trying to be graphic, he said, I literally held my intestines in place. I got up in a puddle of blood and happened to be able to have enough strength to walk out after 37 stab wounds, to walk out the side door to the neighbor who happened to be up at 3.30 in the morning. And he said... The the humor part was, he said he was knocking, and the neighbor looked at me going, "Mm -mm, I'm not letting you in my house. And I thought, you know, I don't know if I would have let you in my house that night. He said, but through some coaxing, he realized, because he couldn't recognize him, covered in blood, opened the door, got the EMS came, police came at this time. When they saw him covered in blood, they said, we didn't know what your ethnicity was. We couldn't tell if you were Hispanic, Asian, black, or white. You lost so much blood when we brought you to the hospital. And this is what's amazing. They get to the hospital, and I fly in immediately, and they find out 37 stab wounds that Kevin is laying and going through surgery. Even from grabbing the knife, it severed, started to sever fingers from his hand. 37 stab wounds later, this is what the surgeon said. said, not one stab wound hit a vital organ of his body. Not one stab wound. Hit a vital organ. Can you imagine that? You know some angel had to be going, you can stab him here, not here, over here, not here. You can do what you want, and you're not, just, you're not a very good criminal because I'm going to protect this man and what's going to happen to him. Gets to the hospital, survives. 
The police write in the report. He showed it to me. The police write in the report. They said, we didn't know what kind of human would do this. We pulled out our 9 millimeter Glocks and started to walk into the house. And we see this giant puddle of blood that you were laying in and started to look for this man. But while our 9 millimeter pulled, he's gone at this time. And this is the part that they couldn't believe. They could not believe this giant puddle of blood. The officers, as eyewitnesses, said, this is what we don't get. You lost so much blood that if the stab wounds wouldn't have got you, we thought the blood loss would have killed you. But we don't get how you walk 30 yards to the other house because when you stood up in your bare feet, we see your feet, we see no footprints from this puddle to the neighbor's house. He says, there's no, there's no way that you can stand up in that quantity of blood and walk there without us seeing at least the trace of blood. How, how many have ever seen that cheesy picture of footprints in the sand? Okay, this is the updated ghetto version. Call footprints in the blood, and just like we heard today, he can do the impossible, and God can do those kind of things. Only God can do that kind of stuff. I begged him to leave the ministry for three years. We would pay his salary. Leave. Go somewhere. Just don't stay in this city. Go somewhere. Heal emotionally, physically, spiritually. Go somewhere. He wept and said, how can I leave when God spared my life? And so the man that succeeded me and took over for me is preaching not only has been preaching for the last three years in the same pulpit, but preaches with 12 feet, 12 feet of scars on his body. 12 feet of scars, back, stomach, neck, his face. When you see Kevin, his, you see the, 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 the cuts that were on his face that when the man was stabbing him while he was laying on the ground. You see the scarring on his hands that he can't quite bend all the way. That the man that preaches in Detroit this Sunday is a man with 12 feet of scars upon him. And how many know those scars tell a story? Any one of us can look probably at a certain part of our body. You can look at your hands, your arm. You can maybe look down at a leg. You can probably pick up your ankle and see a scar there. And that scar probably tells a story. Probably tells something, maybe something you shouldn't have done, did do. Maybe something that happened to you, but it all has a story. It could be everything from baseball and football, and I've got scars on me because my mom told me not to run. I ran and ran through a glass window. And so you just, you have stuff like that. You have things, it could end up being anywhere. Scars tell stories. I want to tell you a scar story, and I want to take it to you, give it to you from the Bible, and I want you to see it. I, I want to walk you through a story today because I really feel like God wants to do a healing work in this place today. At the end, we're going to, I just want you to get prepared because I had you point and get a little New York attitude on each other because I don't want you to think of others. I want you to think of you today. So I want to take you to a scar story today that's, to me, even more incredible than Kevin's story and the man who's preaching in Detroit this Sunday. And this story is pretty amazing to me. So let's do some Bible history and let's just see if Pastor Dan has been preaching you to you correctly and theologically correct from the Bible. And I just want to ask a few questions as he puts his head down um, to wonder. First king of Israel is who? 
All right, it's a little shabby, but it's still correct. So you're doing okay. So that's, I'll give you a C. So we have a C here. So it's Saul, okay? Second king of Israel was who? Okay, now we got you up to a B. Third king of Israel was who? Now, look, you're, you're on a roll, B+. Plus. Fourth king of Israel, F. Now, here's the problem, and this is what we have to deal with. Everybody was just kind of thinking, oh, oh what are we going to do? Rehoboam is his name. Now, who said Rehoboam? No, you didn't. Put your hands, because everybody's going like, I said it. I thought it. The Holy Ghost revealed it to me. Listen to me close. Rehoboam is the second king, and it's significant about Rehoboam coming in. Young people, students, listen to me for a second, because what this young man does literally changes your Bible and changes the whole life of Israel. Rehoboam becomes the fourth king of Israel, but makes a decision. He asks the elders first of what to do with the kingdom, wouldn't listen to them, and then asked his peers or asked his boys what he should do, and the advice was absolutely different. The Bible says he listens to the young men, watch this now, and the kingdom splits for 450 years because of a decision somebody made. Because somebody didn't listen to proper counsel, they listened to their peers, which literally splits the kingdom, and when you read the Bible, you will start to see Israel and Judah as not, they're not at this moment synonymous, but they're separate entities because a kid doesn't make a right decision. Or, let me put it to you this way, listens to the wrong people. Listen to your peers, they'll tell you what you want to hear. Listen to me. But if you really want to know the truth, get this down, process up. Talk to people who have more wisdom, more mileage, more journey than you if you want the truth. The problem is, if you don't want the truth, talk to your buddy. If you want the truth, talk to your wife. Now, listen to this, because this is important. And all the men said, amen? Splits the kingdom, and now 450 years, the kingdom is split. It now begins to elongate chronicles and kings. And every time you read stories, you are going to read that there's Judah and there's going to be Israel. One would have ten tribes. The other would have a tribe and a half. And they would become larger. Um, and, and, and after 450 years, Israel would be larger than Judah. And then after 450 years, it wasn't over then the split kingdom. Then Assyria comes in and takes over Israel. Then Babylon, which we have the stories of Daniel, comes in and takes over Judah. And one man's decision begins to affect over four centuries... And puts them into this whole amazing bondage because he wouldn't listen to what wise counsel was. That's why those decisions that you make are so important and that you've got to get right counsel. The Bible says in Proverbs 13, he who walks with wise men will be wise. So the question is, who do you walk with? Well, here's the issue. Let's get to the scar story for just a second. Israel was really messed up for all 450 years. In fact, when you read it in the Bible, I could be off about a king or two, but about the 27 or so kings that they had, every one of them were wicked. Every one. There wasn't a good one in the bunch. Every one of them were just were, were terrible, and it just plunged them into a backslidden state. 
Judah was a little bit different, which was the line of Jesus. Judah was a little bit different. Not great, but a little bit different. Of their 26, 27 kings, about 23 were horrific. Two or three started good, ended bad. People like Josiah, Amaziah, they just had their moments. But there were two revival kings that what we would call in Old Testament history that literally changed the nation. Two kings. One of them's name was Josiah. And the scar story that I want you to take, to, take you to in your Bible is a man named Hezekiah. Take your Bible, go to 2 Kings chapter 18, let me read you a story, and then I want to begin just to quickly go to a very important point and a moment of healing in this place. 2 Kings chapter 18, and I want to read you the story, the scar story of Hezekiah, which won't be evident immediately, but let me read it to you. 2 Kings 18, and you'll see it right from the very beginning. Here we go. Now, now it came about... In the third year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, became king. Do you see the distinct kingdoms there? One says Judah, one says Israel. We're not interested in Israel. We're interested in the other kingdom. We're interested in Judah. So this is Judah now. We're not worried about Israel. Watch this now. Hezekiah, don't miss this now, Bethesda, son of Ahaz. That's his dad. Look what it says about him. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Abby, the daughter of Zechariah. Verse 3, he did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. Now, verse 4 is interesting. I don't want to go by this fast. I want to pause for a second here. Verse verse 4, he removed the high places, broke down the sacred pillars, cut down the Asherah, and look at this, and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days, the son of Israel burned incense to it, and it was called Nehushtan. Look at me for a second. This is, this is almost ridiculous. 700 years ago, in the book of Numbers, the children of Israel were grumbling in the desert. And you remember God sending serpents to bite them? Anybody remember that story? Sends these serpents to bite them. They cry out in repentance, and God tells Moses, build a bronze serpent And these famous words that affected Spurgeon's life from Numbers 21 and 22, it's these words from the King James, look and live. Look upon this serpent. Look upon this thing and live. Jesus even quotes the story in John 3 as he's talking to Nicodemus. And so here's what's crazy. These people, after it works, watch this now, after it works, they pack it up and begin to travel around with it for 700 years and even call it Nehushtan. They have a name for it and burn incense to it. This is amazing to me is that what people did then and still do today, it is so easy to take something that God did and used in the past and try to fast forward it and think, If God did it then, he's got to use it the same way now. And God going, hold on. I don't need you to lift up a method that I used to use. I need you to lift up Jesus, who is the one that doesn't change. Anybody following me with me on this? Listen, because this is important. I grew up in church. I grew up, and I'm looking at this music today, and this this band pit, and the, the fish tank over there, and all this stuff. 
Do you know if this was in the church that we grew up, this is all demonic stuff. My goodness, this this electric guitar, and then you lift him up on this platform like he's some rock and roll star. God's not pleased with this. And then you take the man and put him in here, banging the drums, playing the devil's drum. You know what I'm talking about, Dan. And then you've got the pit. Good, I'm glad it's a pit because that's where you're going. And so you have all that stuff. That's what it was. Listen, we grew up at a time that what you had was an, if God can use an organ and a piano, that's all we need. And let me just tell you that it's not about an organ, a piano, a carpet, a screen, or a pulpit that looks like a construction site. It is about Jesus. That's what it's about. And there are some times you may have to come in and destroy some stuff that God used in the past so Jesus can be seen. Because some moments we start worshiping the method and forget the man who died for us. That was free. You don't have to pay me for that. Okay, now. Keep going. Verse 5. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, sort of after him. Look at this verse. There was none like him in all the kings of Judah, nor among any of them that were before him. What they were saying was, is he was the best. In 450 years, this cat changed a nation. Hardest part of moving to New York City from Detroit, it's not the same. People go, oh, you will move from one city to that. It's a whole different beast. And to go from the cheapest city, inner city in America, to the most expensive was huge. I bought, listen, we bought, with God's help, that triple X theater, 900 seat, triple X theater. We bought it for $55,000. 55000 And it wasn't like God brought the price. No, that's what real estate cost in Detroit. I had a beautiful home in Detroit. I paid $22,000 for my home. When I left after 20 years, it went up to an amazing $35,000, my home in Detroit. To take that and then move to New York City to the most ex- one of the most expensive cities in the world was outrageous. The hard part was to bring four children. To bring children 11 and 9, 4 and 3 years old. I mean, to bring them, I, I, and I learned something in New York City. Everybody in New York has one child. Everybody. I mean, we were like, it was like, it was like a science fiction movie. All these people were leaving with children, except this one station wagon with me going, hey, we're going, there's no traffic. And all the kids are hanging out the window, and everything's tied on the roof, and we're thinking, what's going on? Because I started to realize, if you have one child, you can live in New York. If you have two, child, two children, you move to Long Island. If you have three, you go to New Jersey. If you have four, you go to Fort Worth. And so what happens is... I'm just telling you the truth. Can I just tell the truth? I mean, I fly out tomorrow, so I go back to my church. And as a dad and raising four children in New York City, let me tell you what I'm interested in when I read a story like this. How do you raise a kid to change a nation? You're sitting here as parents. We have our, we have our young people coming back from uh, Dry Gulch Western Village, and you have, the, you have IHOP, the pancake prayer place and you have all that stuff and you guys all came back filled with but how do you as parents how do you change how do you how do you raise kids to change a generation 
How do you raise kids to change a nation? And so when I'm reading this story, I'm going, with all that we're faced now in this country, how many know we need kids to change our country? And then, so here's what I did. I'm looking at this story going, okay, as a dad, first verse, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, I'm going this. Ahaz, I want your secret. What, what could I tell my kids and the kids at Bethesda? The college students and the, and the kids that are in your children's program, your high school ministry, your J-high ministry. What can I tell you kids? What did Ahaz do to, change, to get his son to change a nation? I've got these four kids and I want to do that. And so I, I, I'm trying my best with these four kids. And sometimes it's difficult. I've got my oldest is a boy, Christian Paul. We named him after my dad. And then the three, young, the three girls. And so... We prayed and we decided from the very beginning, listen to me parents, that we would pray three things over our children every single night. Three things we prayed over them that they heard this ever, ever since they were born, they've heard these prayers. And it was just God gave us something. Prayer number one, we pray. God protect their virginity. Keep them sexually pure to the day they get married. Let them only marry one person and let them be a Christian. And we would pray. They didn't know what virginity was. And we're praying this as they're one, two, three years old. I remember, as they would hear that, I remember Anna, a few years ago, raises her hand. She goes, I know who I'm going to marry. I said, what are you talking about? You're, you're nine years old. What do you mean you know who you're going to marry? She goes, I'm going to marry Christian, my brother. I said, hold on. We're not hillbillies in this family. I said, this is, we're not from West Virginia and hillbillies. You're not marrying your brother. I said, are you serious? You said, well, you said we're supposed to marry a Christian. His name is Christian, so I'm going to get ready to marry him. I said, you have just grieved the Holy Spirit. Go to bed. You're not even getting the other two parts of the prayer. So you only get one part tonight. Hope you make it till the morning. God, protect their virginity. Keep them sexually pure to the day they get married. Number two, God, protect them physically. That no sickness, disease, harm, or danger would ever come near their bodies. God, keep cancer from them. Keep diabetes from them. Keep sickle cell from them. Keep heart disease. Keep them. Keep high blood pressure. We, we just pray. And where we lived in Detroit, we needed to pray. Even from the story we told you. was wasn't something that was odd from what we experienced. Other than just somebody very close to us being stabbed like heaven. But we would pray that. God, just keep them physical. And especially in the schools today, you don't know what can happen when you send your kid to school. We, we, we saw that in New York with just right up the street from us in Connecticut with the shooting in Connecticut. We don't know what's going to happen. And so God, protect their virginity, protect them physically, and then we would pray this third one, protect their destiny. God, let them be exactly what you've called them to be, nothing more and nothing less. I didn't want to impose upon my children what I wanted them to be. And there are times that I've tried to do that. I've looked at my son and said, either you're going to be, go into the ministry and preach for Jesus, or you're going to be a professional athlete and support me in the ministry. I said, so it's just one of those two. You don't have any choices here. But then we, we kinda, I've, I've kind of dealt with God on it, and God just goes, let me deal with your children. And so that's what we pray. God protect their virginity, God protect them physically, and then destiny. Let them be what you've called them to be. And we would say things like this, don't let them ever know a day of backsliding in their life. Never a day of backsliding. But one of the things that was interesting, and sometimes I'd pause and I'd say, guys, tell me, what do you think your destiny is? What do you think Jesus wants you to be? 
Christian, my oldest son, uh, he's now just turned 13, he just goes, I feel like I want to own a resort in the Caribbean. No, I'm serious. <laughs> he goes, a resort in the Caribbean and support missions around the world through the money that I'm going to make. I said, that's phenomenal. I said, will mom and I be able to stay there? He goes, at a discount, but you can come and stay there. That's exactly what he told me. Secondly, Anna Sophia. Th this girl is brilliant. Trust me, brilliant. Anna, what, would you, what do you think your destiny is? I'm going to go to Columbia Law School, and she made us buy her a Columbia Law School shirt. She's 11. So she's going to, I'm going to go to Columbia Law School. I'm going to, I'm going to become a lawyer. Then I'm going to become a um, governor of New York, and then I'll be the first woman president. Oh, I'm just telling you, you're going to want to know me. You're going to want to invite me back and go and like, this is the president's father. You're going to, seriously, that is going to happen. She's brilliant. Let me, let me skip to Lauren, our littlest one. Lauren Gwen, named after Gwen Wilkerson. She really doesn't count. I go, what do you want to be when you grow up? She goes, a grown-up. Doesn't count. So let me talk to you about Grace. This is the one I'm concerned about. Gracie's our blonde hair, blue-eyed. No one is blonde hair. I'm not. Cindy's not. We, we don't even know where she's from. So if we, just, we look at Grace, what is your destiny? What do you think? She's six. I want to be a princess. I said, good. I said, there's money in that. I said, you can do that. I said, princess, get a big house. I said, that's a good, that's a good start. What else? Horses. I want to ride horses. I said, well, princesses do that. Said, and anyone who has a horse, you know they got money. So I said, that's good. So you got a princess, you got a horse, and then she goes, I want to work at a car wash. I want to, I want to wipe cars at the end when they come out because people hand you money, and I, would just want, and I want to dry the cars because I like the music that they play in the car wash and just do that. I said, hold on, hold on, just one second. I said, I got it. I said, listen, I said, there's nothing wrong with working at a car wash. I said, let's go back to princess and horses. I said, but just listen for a second. Maybe you own like a string of car washes, you know. But I said, but I said, this, this, it's a respectable profession. I said, I don't think you can like support a family with that. But I said, I just want you to think larger, Gracie. I just need you. I said, I know you have blonde hair and blue eyes. You don't think you belong to us. But you really do. And I said, I want you to understand that God has huge things for your life. Huge things for your life. Because that's what we do as, as parents. We think sometimes larger for our kids than car wash, car washes. We just think that way. And I, wanna, I wanted to think to myself, did Ahaz think that way for Hezekiah? Or was Hezekiah a Gracie? Or was Hezekiah an Anna Sophia? What, what was going on? So here's what you do. Now listen, here's the part that you got to get. When you read the Bible, impose questions on the text. Ever bef way before you Googled. I, 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 listen, I understand how important of a tool Google is. But I'm afraid that even with ministry today, it's taken away this sense of study and searching for yourself. So some, what you need to do is before you just throw something on a search engine, impose questions on a text. So my question that I imposed on this verse was, what kind of parent was Ahaz to raise up a kid in a, in a kingdom that was just all messed up? And what I discovered was amazing to me. And so the way that you discover is just to kind of first go, let's go backwards. And let me take, the, let me take you backwards for just a second. So take your Bible. 
So we know that Hezekiah is the son of Ahaz. Ahaz is his dad. So let's go backwards. Let's go to chapter 16, and let's read about his dad, and let's see. I mean, how does he do this? Does he read Kevin Lehman books? Does he send his kid through some type of, you know, boarding school? How does Ahaz raise Hezekiah to change an entire generation and an entire nation, Bethesda? And what I found was amazing. Look at chapter 16, and let's see if this helps us at all. Verse 1, chapter 16, 2 Kings, verse 1. In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, Ahaz, that's Hezekiah's dad, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, becomes king. Then it says this, Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did, I'm going to scream the word out, not to what was right in the sight of the Lord, his God, is his father David. Look at me for a second. That just messed me up right there. Uh, the Old Testament phraseology for somebody being a Christian or living for God is doing what was right in the sight of God. Hezekiah he did what was right in the sight of God means he was a God-fearing man, loved God, would serve God. Did not do what was right. Mean you didn't love God. You wanted to do your own thing. You lived a selfish life. You're not a Christian. That would be the Old Testament phraseology if I could take that kind of liberty with you today. So the king that changes a nation, one, doesn't even have a Christian dad. His dad's not even a godly man. His dad is, is not somebody that, that is pouring into his son and giving him values and morals and truth as a father because he's not even a Christian. And then it got worse for me. Look at the next verse. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, which means the other guys, the wicked ones, and even made, and I circle this in my Bible, look at this, his son. Who's his son? Hezekiah. Pass through the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out from before the sons of Israel. Now, my mind is just working here. I'm going, okay, son of Ahaz, let me go backwards and find Ahaz. He's not even a Christian. Then the next verse tells me he makes his son pass through the fire. What does that mean? So now I'm going, imposing questions, going, what does this mean? So I'm going backwards on the text, and there's maybe two nuances to this, but no explanation what this means. You have indirectly here at Bethesda have affected my life via through your pastor, um, Pastor Des Evans. Des has invested in me. I would come to your city so many times when I was pastoring in Detroit, and I would call Priscilla, and I would ask, would, would Pastor Des meet with me? And I, I, don't, I, I can't even remember. I believe I remember the place. And I remember Des would meet me at 820 at a restaurant called Steak and Ale. Anybody remember Steak and Ale? Oh, Jesus, help us. Steak and ale, that's why they're no longer in business. Well, steak and ale, Pastor Des used to meet me there, and I used to sit there with a pad and pen because there were no such things as iPads and iPods or anything. And I would ask him about books, and Des would have me in New York City going to these Jewish rabbinical stores. I was like the only Gentile in there, and all these guys with yarmulkes. I'm going, what in the world is he doing to me? He would turn me on to Scottish preachers. I remember I'm, I'm indebted to him for Andrew Jukes and so many different things that Des would pour into me. 
And, and it was just, it wasn't a lot, but it was the few times affected my life. And so indirectly, you and this church have had such an influence upon my life. And you um, pouring into me through your pastor. As a result of men like Dez and men like uh, a Leonard Ravenhill that has been part of my life. And a David Wilkerson. I, I've got about 8,000 books in my library. And, and a thousand of them are on my Kindle. About 7,000 are hardcovers. And through all those books, nobody addresses this issue of what it means to pass through the fire. You can start with the, 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 the famous foundational commentaries that you see in every older pastor. You can go to a pulpit commentary, preacher's homiletic. You can go to biblical illustration. You can go to all of them. None of them deal with this. Until I found something, these two giant phone books, and I think, and probably, because I didn't even know who the guy was, probably Des told me his name too. And, and it was a Scottish preacher, and it was a guy that all the commentaries would quote, and his name was John Kitto, K-I-T-T-O. And I found them on the bottom shelf in Grand Rapids, Michigan, these two phone books, and it was called Daily Bible Illustrations that this guy put together. Kriegel republished them, and I'm looking at this, and I'm going, I know that name. I think Des told me about him. I remember buying these two giant phone books and thinking to myself, wow, this, I think this is it. Open it up, and it was the only book of, of 8,000 books that even dealt with this passage. John Kiddo was a historian, a Bible historian, an Old Testament historian, and a pastor. So let me tell you what John Kiddo says. He said it could be a God, though this really doesn't matter, mean much to us. He said it could be Chemosh or Melech, he says, from the Gentile gods. It was Israel at this time was doing it because they were influenced. But that's neither here nor there. He says, this is what the God looked like, little G. He says it was about 35 feet tall and made of brass. Let, let's, let's say those ceilings are close to 35 feet tall. Just look up, everybody. Look up for a second. Look up. Lift up your eyes to the hills from whence cometh your help. We sang that. So he said it could be about that big. Hollowed out, and this is what he says. Animal, bottom. Human, middle. Animal, busting up. He said you have the hind legs of some animal. Then these arms are stretched out, and then the head of another beast. How, how many saw Ten Commandments with Charlton Head, the old one? Remember the last plague that Yul Brenner puts his kid on that brass, that brass thing, and you see the ponytail hanging down from the kid? It, it was something like that, magnified 35 feet high. Kiddo says they would hollow this thing out and set this fire, a blazing fire at the bottom, at the base, of this idol, at the hind legs of this animal. I, I don't know how wide it was. Kiddo didn't express it. This giant thing. Now this thing is blazing, and this is what Kiddo said. It would bring out this eerie burnt orange because the heat was so intense. And he said this, and you could be three to five miles away. People would look on the horizon, see this burnt color on the horizon, kind of like the color of University of Texas, see this burnt orange on the, on the horizon. And he says people would say they're making their children pass through the fire. And here's what they said they would do. They would strip their children down and take them and put them in the hands of this God. I don't know, maybe 20 feet high the arms were, 15 feet high the human hands were sent out. 
And according to this, a man, a father, let's even call him a man, a father, takes his little boy called Hezekiah and puts him in the arms of this God. I just couldn't even imagine. I, I, I think as a dad, there are times, I, I, I just, I remember with Lauren, sometimes she'll sit next to me. She made me watch Frozen the other night with her. It, it was horrible. I'm just sorry. It's horrible. And she's singing the songs at the top of her lungs of this. It's, I'm, and I'm a, I'm a kid movie guy, but God have mercy. Just kill me right there in Frozen. But she, she goes, come down and watch Frozen with me. You've never seen it. So, all right, we'll watch it. So she's moved real close to me. And so, and I remember just kind of putting my arm up and down her arm and feeling how soft that skin is. Just even the thought of putting my child on these arms that are burning with heat. And all of a sudden, I mean, now let me embellish it a little bit. I, and I don't think I'm far off. Can you imagine taking your child and now the heat is burning the backs of the legs and the backs of the, your back and the neck is being burned. And the child is screaming and writhing in pain. This is my embellishment. From 20 feet up, the child is turning and thinking, and I don't know, maybe just out of reflex, turns over and now its chest is being burned. And then falls some 20 feet, Bethesda, into the bottom blaze of fire and then these demonic inhumane priests would pick up the child that passed through the fire listen and if the child is alive then he's a reject but if he dies the gods accepted him and we will worship Chemosh we will worship Melech and on that day a father takes a boy and puts him in the arms of this thing. The father that you, you think was supposed to put your arms around you and go, I'm proud of you. You mean a lot to me. Not, not arms that would take a boy and say, put him in the fire. Put him in the arms of this thing. The hands that you thought were supposed to be there and Pat you on the head or pat you on the back saying, I'm so happy you graduated high school. I'm so happy you got an A. I'm so happy you, you made it through science this year. Are now the hands that now have turned against you. That's what happens to Hezekiah. The hands now are becoming the abuser. The hands have become the attacker when you all of a sudden as a kid thinking, I thought you are supposed to protect me. I thought you are supposed to be there. And you sit in this place just like Hezekiah. The hands that you thought were supposed to protect you, wife, are now the hands that you held at an altar, are now the hands that slap you. The man that said, after he had sex with you, I'll be there for you, is also the man whose mouth that you thought, because he says, I love you, I will always be there for you, is now saying, get an abortion. And now your scar is not only inside, now you have a scar on the outside. The teacher you thought that was supposed to help you to get to the next grade is the one that's shutting the door and putting his or her hands in places that they're not supposed to be. And now all of a sudden, the authority figure in your life, the person, and I'm so embarrassed to say this, and Pastor Dez and Pastor Dan and myself know there are men that stand in our position that abuse their positions. That could be a pastor that all of a sudden now Instead of shepherding, it's now manipulating. 
And God help us, God help me, God help Pastor Dan, that we would be men that would shepherd God's flock. And then you find out that some of you may be sitting in this place because someone dropped you. Someone that you thought you could trust, someone that you thought would be there, someone that you thought, and some of you sit here and going, I don't even, even know who my father is, abandoned you. And here's what's amazing to me. Here's this kid. Listen to me. The kid in chapter 18 is the kid that was burned in chapter 16. There was no skin grafting. There was no heliport to take him to the burn center in Austin or, or around the state of Texas. This kid is in a position that all of a sudden, listen to me now, Bethesda, big point. That the kid that the dad looks at and rejects and says, you are rejected because you're still alive. There was a God in heaven that says, even he rejects you, I'll never reject you. And you're about to be the next revival king that is about to change a nation. Listen to me, scars and all. And be careful of thinking you want someone's role or position and you don't know what's under the robe. You have no idea what's under. I can see someone coming up. I'd like to be king like you, Hezekiah. He goes, you want to be king? Let me show you. Let me show you what goes on. This is what my dad did to me. This is what happens. I brought a friend of mine as I had the privilege for 13 years preaching once a month at Times Square Church with my spiritual father, David Wilkerson, and I sat there with a young man, a young youth pastor, and he looked at me and he just goes, I want a church like this. I want to have 8,000 people, and they're interpreting you in five different languages. I said, really? This is what you want? This is the church you want? I said, let's just let's look under the robe for a second. I said, one, are you ready for your wife to have 21 cancer operations? Two, are you ready for your two daughters to be diagnosed with cancer? Three, are you ready for your 12-year-old to 12-year-old granddaughter to get brain cancer and die at 12 years old and have to do a funeral? I said, four, are you ready for a church split of 800 people leaving the church that it affects you so much physically that for three months David Wilkerson couldn't eat anything but baby food, Gerber's baby food, for three months because he couldn't stomach anything because of the thought that 800 people are starting an 800 line against him, calling him a heretic and calling him all these names. I said, be very careful of what you wish for because we want people's position, we want people's money, we want people's notoriety, and you have no idea what's underneath the robe. No idea what's underneath that. I'd like to be king, really? But always remember, whatever thing you go through, God can take you and put a robe on those scars today. Listen to me. Because that's what he does. That's how he works. That's how he operates. No matter who you are, student, no who you are, father, no matter what your dad has done, your mom has done, your professor has done, your teacher has done, your aunt, your uncle, no matter what abuse, physical, whether you've been raped, whatever it may be, I'm not trying to minimize that. What I'm here to tell you is we all have scars, but we serve a God that puts a robe on the scars. That's what he does. He takes, 
Everything. The robe. Listen, the scars is the experience, but the robe is the calling. It's the destiny that God puts you in. Let me finish with this, and this is where I need you to get this. If keyboarders can come, let's sing How Great Is Our God, if we can do that. Just rules. Listen, there are people here that have helped me. I had the privilege of moving my family and for some months studied and lived in Oxford and we had the opportunity to study in Oxford, England. And it was amazing. It was an amazing time. There are people who are sitting here today that have, we had no shot financially. It was the worst the dollar was ever doing. It was two to one and helped us go. And so Cindy and I and the four children moved to Oxford and studied there for some time. It was great. I, I got to live two blocks from my hero where he taught, C.S. Lewis. I lived, he, he taught at Mordelin College, which is two blocks from where we were living. I'd walk by Mordelin College every day where C.S. Lewis. One of my professors would sit under C.S. Lewis. Some of his last lectures, he would sit under him. He was doing literary classics and literary history there. When we were there... Uh, Caspian, Prince Caspian just came out. And it was kind of a fun time. So Pixar, or I think it was Disney, puts it out. And so they're about to show it in the square at Oxford. And uh, I looked at my kids. I said, let's make this a C.S. Lewis night. And I have friends. C.S. Lewis's house is one of the dorms of the college, Wycliffe Hall, that I was going to. And so it was being used by some of my friends from the school. I said, hey, can I bring my kids over we want, to go to, we, want to, we want to go to Lewis's home. I want them to see it. And we're going to talk about Narnia. And then we're going to go see Caspian. He goes, oh, bring them over. So we did it up that night. So we go, we go to Eagle and Child, the pub that Lewis and Tolkien used to meet with the Inklings. And you would see their names carved in there. They would talk about hobbits and Narnia. And so we ate fish and chips together there in Oxford. Then I said, now we're going to see us Lewis's home before we go to the movie. So brought everybody up to the house and we're going through and this is where he would write this is where he would walk out the door to go to, and so and who else but Gracie the car wash I've got to go pee pee I've got to go pee pee I've got to go pee so I said listen you have no vision in your life but if there's anything you are going to pee pee in C.S. Lewis's toilet bowl that at least you have something to tell your grandkids when you get over, you shall pee pee in C.S. Lewis's bathroom for the love of God. And she did. So if you pull up to a car wash, she's going, Yeah, I went to the bathroom in C.S. Lewis's home. That's going to be her. Can I have a dollar? You need to meet Gracie. So, we went and saw Caspian. Wonderful time. Great night. And we've read the Narnia stuff to our kids, and we've talked about them. And Narnia is uh, different. Lewis is different than Tolkien. They used to debate. Tolkien, Tolkien was never felt he was an evangelist, never felt he was writing. So when you, when you read or go see Lord of the Rings and all that stuff... Anybody who imposes spirituality on it, it's not, it, Tolkien was a Christian Catholic man, but that was never his intention. He was writing good and evil, but he never wanted to do that. You can't look at Gandalf and go, Gandalf, that's the Holy Spirit. No, 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 no. It's not what Tolkien wanted to do. 
That's where Lewis and Tolkien would battle over their right. Lewis, you can do that. You can look at his writing and see an Aslan as the Christ figure. It, it's, it's very clear because he felt he was an evangelist, and that's where they would debate. Of all the allegories, the one that I think hits me most that I want to give to you as we leave and as we pray, not just leave, we're going to pray for you today. There's one that I want to talk to you about that's so important. I want you just for a moment before I give it to you, five more minutes, and then is that okay, Pastor? And I'm, and I'm really done. Because this is what God wants to do. I, I, and I took it because you told the teenagers that if they can worship for an hour and a half, you've got to sit here. I didn't fly in to give you a little sermonette. So just listen to me for a second. think this is important and I just felt the Holy Spirit and I'm not trying to be eerie or weird but listen to me you can minister with scars that remind you of the past but not with wounds and God has to turn wounds to scars and then put a robe on that thing look at me for a second there's no better place to look than another robe that if he pulls it up to say I was betrayed by my brothers. I was falsely accused of committing sexual sin that I didn't. And I was thrown into prison for two years and forgotten about when I was promised something and no one came through. You promised me that you would tell Pharaoh about me and you didn't. The Bible says two years Joseph stayed there. Did you sleep with my wife, Potiphar asked him. I didn't. Before God, throw him in jail, falsely accused. His own brothers, because of a dream he has, throws him into a pit and he's betrayed by his own brothers. He has a dream that his brothers would bow down before him. And listen to me, Bethesda, the dream doesn't take place for almost 22 years later. He sees the brothers bowing before him. 22 years. When God speaks to you about what you're supposed to do, don't get business cards and a website. Just letting you know. You need to get a seatbelt and buckle up because he's going to prepare you for what you're supposed to be and deal with your character. The dream comes true, and here's where I want to show you how, scar- how wounds turn to scars. I have to show you this. Just give me a second, and then I'm going to tell you about C.S. Lewis. Go to chapter 45 of Genesis. You still with me? Okay. You still with me? Okay. Joseph. Joseph is... On the throne, he has a robe, scarred up, betrayed by brothers, falsely accused, forgotten when he was promised stuff. Just listen to those three things. Betrayed by his own family members, falsely accused of something he didn't do, he had nowhere to defend himself, and thirdly, forgotten when he was promised something. Now listen, his brothers are finally bowing before him, the dream has come true, and he's about to tell them, I'm your brother. Don't miss this. This is, if I could tell you anything, this is so important. Look at him. He's going to, in Genesis 45, verse 4. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come closer to me. They came closer. I'm your brother Joseph who you sold into Egypt. I'm him. I could just see the brothers bowing. And Joseph goes, this is the dream. This is it. This is what I, I, I envisioned this 22 years ago. This is it. Now watch his language. Don't miss this, Bethesda. This is when Wounds turn to scars, and he puts the robe on it. Look at this. Look at his language, and he speaks to his brothers. Verse 5. 
He says, now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you. Verse 7. God sent me before you to prepare for you a remnant in the earth. Look at verse 8. He says, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God, and he has made me a father to Pharaoh. Verse 9. Hurry, go to my father and say to him, thus your son Joseph, God has made him the Lord. Look at me for a second. Do you see his language is all God now? This is when you know someone is still living with wounds. They'll mention the people that did the junk to them. But the ones that have the scars and a robe upon them say, don't worry about who did it to me. God has healed me. God has moved me on. And God is doing something inside of my life. That's why I tell you this. To Pastor Dan and every leader in here, once you hear people talking about people, they're still wounded. But when you know there's a scar, is their language is not talking about what this pastor did or what this individual did, what my daddy did, what this individual did. You go, well, no matter what they did, God brought me through. His language is filled with God. C.S. Lewis's book as you stand to your feet. Golly, I'm tired. my favorite allegory. It's called The Great Divorce. 100, 105 pages. It is a bus ride from hell to heaven and Lewis is trying to show people that if you're not a Christian, you do not want to be in heaven in the presence of God. You want to get out as soon as possible. And the last chapter is worth the read. Twelve people are getting ready to get back on a bus and every one of them has this little demonic figure upon them. And they're all getting on the bus. Can't wait to get out of heaven. Can't wait to get out. And the last man was kind of delaying. Lewis writes, this Christ figure looks at this demon on the shoulder and he just goes, I can take that from you. And the man goes, no, I'm okay. I'm good. I'm just going to get back on the bus. And he pauses when he speaks and he goes, let me take that from you. And then the demon starts to speak. And it says, don't let him do it. It's going to hurt. There'll be a lot of screaming. Don't let him take me. And the man goes, no, I'm just going to get back on the bus. He goes, let me take that from you. Then the demon speaks one more time. He goes, I'll be good. I won't say anything ever again. Just get on the bus and I won't speak to you ever again. Finally, he goes, let me take that from to you. Without, take that from you. Without the man even knowing, he moved closer. And this Christ figure grabs this demon off his shoulder, throws it on the ground. And Lewis writes, they're screaming, there's smoke. And this thing all of a sudden starts to transform into this beautiful white stallion. And Lewis tells us that instead of a man getting on a bus back to hell, he gets on a stallion and rides into the glories of God. And I'm here to tell you this, he can take that from you. Don't get in a car back to hell when he can transform you. Let him put a robe on every scar. Bow your head and close your eyes. This is a moment of healing. I had you purposely. It wasn't a game. I had you purposely. Now think of anybody else. I hope so-and-so hears this. I hope this person is here. I don't see them. It's you he's after. He wants to put a robe on. I don't care what your dad has done, 
what a pastor has done, what a professor, a teacher, a junior high teacher, a boyfriend has done. Every one of us has scars and every one of us are waiting for him just to put a robe on those scars today. He takes the wounds and they get scarred. He takes the wounds and starts to bring healing and they bring, turn into scars. And then he says, now it's time for your destiny. Scars and all. He knows about them. And today he wants to change your language. God is getting me through this. Though the journey was tough, God brought me through. I'm here today because God kept me alive. I shouldn't even be here, but God puts a robe on those things today. And if you're here today, I just felt so impressed to talk to you about this because this is going to be a moment of healing today. If you're here right now and just say, Tim, pray for me. I need a robe on this thing today. I need a robe on this thing today. I'm not going to ask you what it is. I, it, literally, there could be physicals. It could be black and blue. Or it could be something of the soul or the mind. If you just say, I don't care if you're a man. I don't care if you're a high schooler or a junior high. I don't care if you're a grandma. You just sit there and go, pray. I need a robe on this thing today. If that's you, would you raise your hand? Say, pray for me today. I need a robe on this thing. Hold it up high. Hold them up high. Quickly, as fast as you can, get out of your seat and walk down here. Quickly. As they start to sing this. Quickly. Quickly. Just get out of your seat. Walk down here right now. As fast as you can. This is going to be a moment that God wants to bring healing to this place today. Quickly, just get down as fast as you can, and we're going to ask for his healing touch just to come. Come on, sing it to him as you come. Sing with me how great is our God, and all oh, will see how great, how great is our God. On. Let him put a robe on that thing today. Lift your hands and sing it again. Come on, sing it again. How great is our God? How great is our God? Sing with me. How great is our God? to put a robe on this thing today. 
He's going to put a robe on this thing. That your language is going to start to change. Because you could talk about what everybody else has done, but he's going to give you a Joseph vocabulary. You don't need to know why. All you can just say is this. God took me through this. God kept me in the midst of this. And I'm alive today because of God's mercy. And what he's going to do is now put a robe on this thing. You know what we do? And this is the part as I was praying for you yesterday that I felt. Do you know you can forgive people even though they're not asking for forgiveness? You know what I call that? I call it Calvary forgiveness. As Jesus is hanging on the cross, he looks at the people with the, with, with the weapons from their mouth of mocking to the, to, the, to the taunting. And know what he says? Father, what? For they don't know. And here's what's amazing. They weren't asking and saying we're sorry. They weren't even apologizing. Your pronouncing forgiveness is not based on whether the other person is repentant. You don't have to sit here and go, unless they apologize. And I, Because that means then the person has control over you. Not true. God has control over us. And he can give you the strength to go, you don't even have to be repentant. I declare forgiveness over this situation right now. And when I talk, you'll never hear your name mentioned again, only that God is great and has brought me through this. Come on, lift your hands right now. Say this with me. Say, Jesus, put a robe on these scars thank you you will change me from the inside out these lips will speak about the greatness of God not about men not about women I'll speak about God whatever's been done I forgive them with Calvary forgiveness I pronounce today, I forgive you. Put a robe on the scars and release me to be what I'm supposed to be in Jesus' name.